Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are technically in Isaiah 57 tonight. The whole chapter is about people who are righteous, upstanding people within Israel versus people who have continued chasing after their foreign gods in rebellion against the living God. And those are the two categories that we've seen continually through this book. Those are the two categories that we've seen as the wise and the foolish. But what's important to remember is that there's nobody that is inherently righteous. There is nobody within Israel that came out of the womb righteous and just continued that way. Instead, what we do know is that God himself preserved to himself a remnant within Israel. And we see that language all the way through the Old Testament. Paul picks it up in the New Testament the remnant language. And God even defines what he means by the remnant. It's those that have not bowed the knee to Baal, but he says, I've kept them for myself. And so God is the one who is responsible for the fact that generation after generation, peoples who once occupied this planet disappear. Go try to find a Jebusite. Find me a Hittite. And yet, when I say find a Jew, you can to this very day. You can find Israelites to this very day. And that's because God has always preserved Israel to himself, and he has done it through a remnant so that even as the whole nation continues to rebel against him, there is always that group of people he is preserving for himself generation after generation after generation. So let's start the night by taking a look at that. Tom, if you would, in the same book, Isaiah, turn back to Isaiah 10, 20. And Micah, if you would, Isaiah 11, 11. And Jeff, if you would, Jeremiah 23, 3. That's you, Jeff. April, if you would, Jeremiah 31, 7. Kenneth, if you would, Jeremiah 50, verse 20. Steve, if you would, Micah 2, 12. And really, if you would, Micah 7, 18 as well. So just find the little book of Micah. If you have any trouble finding it, ask Micah, because he's here, and he can tell you where to find that. All of the passages that I've handed out all have to do with the remnant, and seeing how God uses the language of remnant to demonstrate how he is preserving the nation of Israel. So that generation after generation of human beings here on planet Earth, Israel has never completely disappeared, which is why God can keep promising them this glorious future that he has planned for them. And why, as we saw in Jeremiah 31, that God says, if the 
waves of the sea ever stop, if the sun and moon in their courses, if that ever stops, then will Israel cease to be a nation before me forever. Because God is continuing to preserve Israel as a nation, and he's doing that through keeping a remnant. So since we are in Isaiah, Tom is going to read Isaiah 10.20, which is the place where Isaiah introduces us to the remnant. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. In that day, a remnant of Israel is going to trust God. God is going to continue preserving to himself this remnant. Isaiah 11.11, Micah, says what? In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. So in that day, coming up, future yet, God is going to extend his hand a second time to return his remnant, his people. The first time he did that is when he brought them out of Egypt and took them back to the land. Someday he's going to gather these scattered tribes of Israel back to their land, which is why he refers to it as a second time that he's going to do it. From all the places that he has scattered them, where he has preserved them, there the remnant exists. And so he's going to get the remnant of Israel and bring them back to their land. Jeremiah 23.3 says what, Jeff? Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? God says that he is going to regather his remnant from all the places that he scattered them. So sovereign God not only takes credit for the fact that they are scattered, but also that the same God who scattered them is going to return them back to their land because they are his remnant. So then Jeremiah 31.7, I believe, is April. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. At that point, what Jeremiah is describing is those people who belong to God, but who are scattered out into the nations. They're out among the Gentiles. And yet the prayer through Jeremiah the prophet is, oh God, restore them again. Bring them back because they do have the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, because they do have the prophetic promises of restoration and ultimately a glorious future. So therefore... The prayer is in league with what God has already said in praying that God will do exactly what God has said he's going to do and restore Israel, the remnant of his people. Kenneth then is going to read Jeremiah 50, verse 20. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. Hold on. In those days, says God, even if I make a search for the iniquity of Israel who I think we would all agree are very iniquitous people, very sinful, rebellious people, as we're going to read tonight. And yet God says the day is coming when he's going to search for their iniquity, and there won't be any. Read it again. In those days and at that time, 
declares the Lord, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none, and for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found, for I will pardon those whom I leave as remnant. I will pardon those and leave a remnant. When God speaks about this future for Israel, and he speaks about the regathering of Israel, and when he speaks about paying the sin debt in such a way that he has cast their sin as far as the east is from the west, and so no iniquity is going to be found in them, it's going to be among the remnant of Israel, the ones that he has kept, that he has preserved through the generations until the time that he actually regathers them again. I am asked frequently as people listen to our teaching about a glorious future for Israel, people will say, well, then you're saying that God is going to save every single Jew who ever lived, every single Israelite. Is that what you're saying? And I have to say, well, no, because Jesus himself, speaking to the Jewish leaders, condemned them and said, your sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Okay, so there's a lost Jew right there. Well, then you can't say universally that it's a rule that all Israel, all the Jews are going to be saved. But what we do know is, just like what Kenneth just read, it's going to be from the tribe of Israel and the tribe of Judah. So it's the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And when Paul talks about all Israel will be saved, he's saying all 12 tribes. They're all going to be represented in the salvation that God is going to accomplish. So it's impossible after reading that kind of remnant talk to say God's done with Israel or God has completely abandoned those people that he foreknew. Paul addresses that in Romans and says God would never do that. God forbid he would do that. So what about the fact that they're evil, sinful people? He's keeping himself a remnant from all the tribes, from the northern and southern nations. He's keeping himself a remnant so that Israel remains until the end, and then he is going to save his people. So Micah 2.12, if you would, Steve. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. As the flock in the midst of their fold, they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. There will be so many of them and so much celebrating that they're going to make great noise. But in that verse, there were two synonymous terms used. The children of Israel that he's going to save and the remnant. So you're getting a feel for how this remnant language is being used. Micah 7.18 is also you there, Steve. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delights in mercy. You're going to see a very similar sentiment in Isaiah 57 where God says, I'm not going to contend forever. That's verse 16. I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry. So God at some point has said that to his remnant, he's going to forgive their sins completely and utterly until, as Kenneth said, you're going to search for it and you're not even going to be able to find it. 
And tribes from the north and tribes from the south are going to make up the remnant of Israel who God has preserved through all of these ages so that he can reach the final culmination during which there's going to be so many people and so much joyous noise that the remnant is not going to be small. It's going to be a very large gathering. Okay, so that's all the language of remnant. Well, not all. That's some of the language of remnant in the Old Testament. When you get to Romans 9, as Paul is reciting all these Old Testament passages to prove that he's telling the truth in Christ and not lying, and that he has great sorrow and unceasing grief in his heart because he wishes that he himself could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And then he defines what Israelites he's talking about. He's not talking about the church. He identifies who the Israelites are, to whom belongs the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises Whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. So as Paul is writing about his desire to save Israelites, and then he specifies what group of people that is, he starts showing that the Old Testament prophets have also promised to do that very thing. In fact, starting in verse 25, he cites from the book of Hosea. And if you know anything at all about the book of Hosea, Hosea is told to go take a wife of prostitution. And then when she goes back to her lovers, God tells Hosea to go get her back and to build a hedge around her and to keep her from her lovers. Well, Hosea and Gomer, his wife, have children. And the name of those children include not my people, and no mercy. And so it says in the book of Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. Okay, now why does Paul bring that up in this particular context? Because he's saying, Israel who was called not my people, who have been scattered, who are not gathered into their land, are going to be called my people. And he's quoting right from Hosea. So he is promising Israel the glorious future that has been promised to them. And God will say to her that was not beloved, you are beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. Paul quotes from the book of Hosea on purpose in order to say that the prophet Hosea has already predicted that God is going to gather, restore, and give a glorious future to his people Israel. Verse 27 says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Paul just picked up the remnant language. Where did he get it? Well, from all the stuff we've been reading tonight that God has always kept to himself a remnant of Israel because they are his people and he will not cast them off entirely. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly 
And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth, that means Yahweh, the Lord of the armies of heaven and all the inhabitants of the earth, except that the Lord Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. So the same way that God poured out his wrath against sin on Sodom and Gomorrah, Paul argues the exact same thing would have happened to us. But Isaiah says that it is God who is responsible for keeping a posterity for Israel or else they would have been wiped out completely. So Paul, again, is picking up and expanding on this remnant concept. I'm nearly done, and we can start reading Isaiah. Paul says in Romans 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I, too, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he, Elijah, pleads with God against Israel and says, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left. And now they're seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? It is. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So Paul's theology, looking at everything that's been said in the Old Testament, is that God, by his grace, not because righteous people within Israel deserved it, but because God has always kept a righteous remnant for himself within Israel. He has always kept those that did not bow to the foreign gods. He has always preserved himself, generation after generation, a people who are called by his name. And he did that all by his astounding grace. That was all introduction to chapter 57. Now we can read chapter 57 pretty quickly because, as I already said, it's really just about the two different groups within Israel. There's the righteous and there's the unrighteous. Chapter 57, verse 1 of the book of Isaiah. This is true of Israel. And this is true of people today. And in fact, to really understand it, I'm still introducing, back up a little bit, chapter 56, verse 11, so that you can hear the context, because Isaiah did not, at that moment, put a big 57 in what he was writing. It is a continuation of the same thought. Verse 11 says, and the dogs are greedy, and they are not satisfied, and they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the very last one. Come, they say, let us get wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. So Paul is describing the wretched state of Israel how even their shepherds, even the watchmen on the wall, 
have all ceased to do their job, how they've all become blind, they've all become greedy, they've become nothing but brute beasts. They're like dogs. But within Israel, there is occasionally the righteous person who is preserved by God, and yet he will live his whole life and then die, and nobody will notice it. Isn't that true to this very moment? The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart. And devout men are taken away while no one understands. You know, every time that we see a celebrity die, it's all over the news. It's splashed everywhere. Some rock star died. So it's like, oh, rock stars, we all care about that. No, oh, there's just days and days of mourning and playing their music repeatedly on all the radio stations and stuff. But those were unjust people. And yet the world just mourns over their passing, over their death. On the same day that celebrities die, thousands of other people die. People you don't know anything about, people you don't hear about. Righteous people who live their whole life working quietly with their own hands so that they'd have something to give to the poor. Righteous people who followed after the gospel of God. Righteous people who spend their whole lives caring about the things of Christ, and they pass away, and, and nothing's said about it. You don't even know them. You don't know their names. You don't even know that they did, but it happens every day. Well, that was true of Israel. The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart, and devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. That's what the evil people don't understand. What they don't understand is that God knows them as righteous people, knows the remnant, knows those people who belong to him. And when they die, God is removing them from the evil of this world and taking them to the righteous kingdom that he has already prepared for them since before the foundation of the world. There is a story, and I may have shared it here before at some point. There was a Puritan who was dying and uh, had sent a letter to his daughter letting her know that he was dying. And of course, mail did not move quickly in those days. When she got the letter, she began the travel toward home. So weeks passed. And when she came to the house where her father was laying, uh, she said, is he still among the living? And he, his last words, were, I am still here among the dying. Soon I will be among the ever-living. In order for that man to make that statement, he had to understand this principle, that when devout men are taken away, no one understands, because a righteous man is taken away from the evil. That is an act of grace on God's part, removing his people and bringing them home to himself and taking them away from the evil of this world. And that's why we can be happy. That's why we can celebrate the homegoing of righteous people. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds. That's one of the reasons that when... Jesus heard that Lazarus was dead, knowing that Lazarus was one of his own and was a righteous man. 
he didn't say initially to his disciples, he didn't say, yeah, Lazarus is dead. He said he sleeps because he's comfortable in his death. And then, of course, his disciples, not understanding, said, oh, well, then that's good. If he's sleeping, he's going to get better. That's all good. And then Jesus found that to say, look, he's dead. But a righteous man being taken away from the evil of this world enters into peace. And then they rest in their beds. Each one who has walked in an upright way. Now, that's everything that God has said about righteous people at the beginning of this chapter. At the end of this chapter, which I hope to get to tonight, God then returns to speaking of the righteous men. In verse 18, he says, I have seen his ways, and I will heal him, and I will lead him and restore his comfort to him and to his mourners, creating praise from their lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked, the whole rest of this chapter is about the wicked. So go back to verse 3. Because now God starts unloading on the wicked. And the language is pretty brutal. He starts out by describing the fact that they are chasing after all these foreign gods, particularly Amorite gods. And they have abandoned the God of their youth. They have abandoned Yahweh, despite the fact that they know their history with Yahweh, despite the fact that their fathers and their forefathers would have told them about all the blessings of God and how God cared for them and preserved them. Nevertheless, they go chasing after things like magic and drugs. And God, again, is going to use the language of prostitution. Just like he told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Throughout Isaiah, what we've seen is that when the Israelites chase other gods, God, who has been a husband to them, treating Israel as his wife, and she is an unfaithful, erring wife, who then goes and chases after her other lovers and commits prostitution with them. It's a pretty stinging indictment. Mm -hmm. And now he returns to it. But come here, you sons of a sorceress. Okay, he starts right out with, the law has already said, no witchcraft, no sorcery within Israel. But you children of Israel are the children of sorceresses. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. So he's now called Israel a prostitute, an adulterer, and a sorceress. Against whom do you jest? At this point, God seems to be saying, you make fun of the righteous. And yet, in your mockery, you're jesting against my chosen people. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of lies and deceit? Who inflame yourself among the oaks. Uh, what you need to know about the Amorite gods and Amorite goddess worship in particular is that it took place among the groves, among the trees, which Isaiah has mentioned a few times, that you go and you worship in the forest among the oaks. 
and on the mountaintops, in the high places. And so oftentimes you will hear about Israel worshiping in the high places and in the groves. So now he's going to refer to the fact that you inflame yourselves among the oaks. That doesn't mean you light yourself on fire. But this means that you stir yourself up emotionally. You get all revved up while you're in the oaks and under every luxuriant tree. And you slaughter your children in the ravines. That is a direct reference to Molech. You slaughter the children in the ravines under the cleft of the crags. And among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion, is most likely a reference to the fact that the children of Israel used to dig into the ravines looking for stones that have been worn down over years and years by the water, and they would use them to cast lots. The same way that we would flip a coin, they would look for balanced, smooth stones to determine what the future held. Rather than inquiring of God, they left it up to luck and chance and casting lots. You inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree who slaughter the children in the ravines and under the clefts of the crags. Among the smooth stones of the ravine is your portion and they are your lot. You would use them to cast lots. Even to them, you have poured out a libation and you have made grain offerings. So shall I relent? Concerning these things, God says, am I just going to look the other way? When you're taking the offerings of the grain that I created, the grain that belongs to me, and the libations, drink offerings, you're pouring them out to these foreign gods, and they belong to me, and am I just going to overlook that? You've made a grain offering to them, and you've poured out a libation. Shall I relent? Concerning these things, upon every high and lofty mountain, you've made your bed, and you also went up there to offer sacrifice. I think that's God in a bit of divine sarcasm. He has already described the righteous man dying in his bed and being at rest and in peace in his bed. But now he's saying, you rebels who chase after your foreign gods... You take your bed of prostitution with you when you go there to pour out your libations and your offerings to them. And you get up there and you offer your sacrifices to them. And behind the door and the doorpost, it's not bad enough that they're doing it in the groves, among the trees, and up on the mountaintops worshiping foreign gods. But he says, and you do it in your houses, behind your own closed doors, you do the same thing. You've set up, the NASB says, a sign. It's a word that means a memorial. It's a token to your God that you have set up so that you can also worship these foreign gods at home. And behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorials, indeed far removed from me. And you have uncovered yourself. Again, another reference to the law saying repeatedly that you're not to uncover someone else's nakedness. 
and yet you've uncovered yourself to these foreign gods. It's all the language, the description of unfaithfulness and prostitution. Far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself, and you have gone up and made your bed wide so you can have plenty of lovers, and you have made an agreement for yourself with them. Instead of listening to me, instead of doing things my way, rather than following the covenant, the agreement that I made with you, you're making your own agreements for yourself with them. And you have loved their bed, and you have looked on their manhood. Because Israel is referred to as the wife of God, he speaks of Israel in the feminine, and so then he describes these foreign gods in the masculine, so that they are committing adultery against God himself, and he describes it as, you've uncovered, you've looked at their manhood. And you have journeyed to the king with oil, and increased your perfumes, and you have sent your envoys a great distance, and made them go down to Sheol. That word Sheol means down to the grave, down to death. But look at the effort they've put in. You've journeyed to the king, the Amorite king, the foreign kings. You go there with your oil, with your perfumes, which should be used in the worship of Yahweh, and yet they're taking it to foreign kings so that they can worship their foreign gods with it, and you've journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes, and you have sent your envoys a great distance to go do your bidding. And all you've done is send them to hell. Again, kind of like Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you compass land and sea to make one proselyte, and you make them twice the child of hell that you are. And you were tired out by the length of your road. It was a distance. It was a long way. But you did it. You wore yourself out to do it. Yet you did not say it's hopeless. Instead, you found renewed strength. And therefore, you did not faint. You put that kind of effort into worshiping your foreign gods. And you wouldn't do what I told you to do. You wouldn't just come to Jerusalem three times a year. You wouldn't just bring your libations and your offerings to me. You wouldn't do it the way that I, the God who delivered you, who brought you back to this land and gave you the land of milk and honey, what did I require of you? I required of you that you don't chase after foreign gods and that you bring me my sacrifices on time when you're supposed to. And I didn't say you had to go some terribly far distance. I said to Jerusalem. But now in the worship of your foreign gods, even if it requires you to go a distance, you will go, you'll put in the effort, even when you're tired out because of the distance of your journey, you don't end up saying, never mind, it's hopeless and turning back. Instead, you find the strength within yourself, and therefore you don't faint. You just keep going. That's the effort that people will put into their depravity that they won't put into righteousness and godliness. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me? God says you're to fear and to love God. You're to reverence me. But as you're going through these lengths, these journeys, with this oil, with these libations, carrying your grains, and you're taking them to foreign cities so that you can worship foreign gods, why did you do that? Were you afraid of those gods? 
Why are you afraid of those gods instead of afraid of me? Who are you afraid of? Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me? And why did you not give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me? God saying, even if I was quiet, I've already laid out my requirements. I've already laid out my law. You already have the oracles of God. You already have the prophets of God. You already have the covenant with God. You have everything necessary to go out and walk through your life worshiping and fearing and reverencing me. And just because I haven't spoken or done some grand miracle in your own limited lifetime, for that reason, you abandon me? That's going on to this very day. People to this very day say, well, yeah, the Bible talks about miracles, but what has God done lately? God right here puts the indictment in front of everybody who, because they haven't seen his activity or heard his voice in their own limited lifetime, will turn their back on him, despite the fact that he has the evidence of all human history behind him. Why don't you fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, and they will not profit you. You think you're a pretty good person. You think you're doing just fine. God says, I'm going to tell you everything you ever did that you ever thought was good. But this is the same Isaiah who has already told us that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags, bloody rags. You don't get to take those in front of God and say, here's my righteousness. God now says, I'll tell you every good thing you ever did. And you know what? It's not going to help you one little bit. I can tell you, I can declare your so-called righteousness and your deeds. And they're not going to profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. When I get angry enough to pour out my fury against you, and when you think that your righteousness is going to save you, I'll tell you all the righteous things you've ever done, and they're not going to profit you, and they're not going to help you, and I'm going to have no regard for them. And so when I pour out my anger against you, then go cry to your gods and see if they're any help against me. God is just really throwing down the gauntlet here. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them away. And he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. Okay, that tells us sort of the completion of all of this remnant language that we began the night by looking at and God saying that he is going to collect his remnant from the northern and the southern tribes, the collection of all 12 tribes, and bring them back to their land, to his holy mountain. God declares it here. But he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up. Build up, build my holy mountain, build the city, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. 
When God starts collecting his people and bringing Israel back to their land, there's nothing that can stop them. God is going to build a highway for them, and nobody is going to keep them from their God. Remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For thus says the high and exalted one. Boy, the names of God, Isaiah is just reaching for. He's the Lord God of Sabaoth. He's the God who is in charge of making heaven and earth. He's the God who is in charge of eternity. He is the everlasting God. He is the high and the exalted one, the one whose ways are not our ways, the one whose thoughts are not our thoughts. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I will dwell on a high and holy place. And also the contrite and the lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever. Neither will I always be angry for the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. The spirit of mankind the spirit of human beings is only going to last for so long. At some point, all of us lay down these terrestrial bodies. At some point, we all return to our maker. And the people who have died safely in their beds, the people who die in comfort in their righteousness, when the breath that God has given you finally ceases, that's the point at which you're going to be Grateful that you pursued the path of righteousness, even though it's difficult to pursue righteousness in this world, in this crazy, sinful, depraved world, even though all hell may break loose against you, even though the world may mock you and make fun of you, open their mouth wide and stick out their tongue at you, even though it's going to be difficult, as Jesus said, you take up your cross and you follow me. As God says here in Isaiah, at some point you're going to grow faint before me and the breath that I've made is going to leave you. But then, verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him and I hid my face and I was angry and he went on turning away from me in the way of his own depraved heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him, and I will lead him, and I will restore comfort to him. So it's very clear that at this moment he's talking about those people who belong to him, those righteous people, the remnant of his people, whose spirit is growing faint and whose breath has finally left them. And even though those people may also be sinners like the rest, Nevertheless, God himself is going to justify him. Even though God will correct you in this lifetime and be angry, he's going to turn away from his anger, which is not going to last forever against you. And though he sees your ways and your deeds and your activities, he's going to heal him. And I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. So there's two groups of people, like I said at the beginning. There's the righteous, there's the unrighteous. The righteous are still sinful human beings. 
but because God has loved them in astounding grace, when the time comes for them to die, even though God knows everything they have done and thought, every act they have committed, God promises that he is going to forgive them, that he is going to redeem them, that he is going to justify him. That is all the language of salvation that we find in the New Testament as well. There's not a person in this room who wouldn't have to admit that you're a sinner, that you were born into depraved flesh. But your hope is that because of Jesus Christ, God is going to forgive you for everything that you are and how you've been. Here the promise is the same. The remnant that belongs to God, the people of God who live within Israel, when they sin, God will forgive their sin and restore them. But the unrighteous, the rebellious, the enemies of God, the ones who are chasing after foreign gods and committing adultery against him, are going to end up in the wrath of God eternally. Here, we'll let Isaiah say it. Verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and a holy place, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit. That's who he dwells with. He stays with, he resides with those who are humble, lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry with him and I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. And I've seen his ways, but I will heal him and I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, the, one who's, the ones who mourn for his passing and for his death. I'm the one who is creating the praise of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord and I will heal him. Don't you want that to be the end of your story? Yes. Because when I read about the sinful ways of men chasing after their unjust gains, when I read that we've all, like sheep, turned away from God, we've all turned to our own way, like sheep, we've all turned astray. And yet, the promise that God is going to be a shepherd to you, that he is going to lead you, that he's going to restore comfort to you, and to all those who care about you, who mourn over you, and create the praise of your lips, even the fact that you praise God is God working in you and through you, creating his own praise from your lips to himself. And God will say, peace, peace to him who is far away and to him who is near, and I'll heal him. There's just not a more glorious promise in the Bible anywhere than that God knows what you're like. He knows you're a sinful person. The same way that he can declare all the righteous works of the evil man, he can declare all the sinful works of the people he chooses. And yet the people he chooses he'll forgive. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up 
refuse and mud. Isn't that a perfect description of evil people and the way they talk and think and act? It's all just refuse and mud. It's the same way that Paul says that all his former works were like refuse to him. It's the same idea. Gee, when you've got a collection of a couple million people and you have to get rid of their waste, it ends up in the rivers. And so then the waters and the waves lap up to the shore. What does it deposit? Deposits the mud that it's collected as it moves forward and the refuse up on the shores. God knows that's what happens. So he says the wicked are like the tossing of the sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. And there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So there's the two camps. There's the wicked unrighteous. There's the righteous in this lifetime, the remnant, those people that he has kept to himself. Those people he has kept to himself, he's going to forgive. And he's going to ultimately bring them comfort. He's going to correct them. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son who he receives. We know that that's true, Old Testament or New. But ultimately, after the correcting, he is going to stop contending And he's going to forgive. And that's at the point of your breath and your heart ceasing to work. And the righteous man perishes. And the devout men are taken away. And no one understands that when the righteous man is taken away, he's taken away to peace. Got it? Questions? The next to the last part about the waters tossing up mire and dirt. I've, I've been to Metropolis, Illinois, a few times, and the Ohio River floods badly in that area. And as a result, all along the Ohio River, it's all kind of garbage that just gets flown up, uh, thrown up, and then it lays down as the river retreats. And then periodically, here comes some more, and here comes some more. And it's quite a mess. And isn't that a, a perfect description on God's part? You know, up in Detroit, there's the Rouge River. Not only is there a lot of sewage dumped into it, but all of the auto plants up there, especially the Ford, it's actually called the Rouge River plant. All of the uh, refuse that the plant makes in the building of cars, all, they dump it into the river. And so the problem with the Rouge River at this point is it's too thick to drink and too thin to plow. I heard that phrase in Michigan. So, But boy, it's, it's just a great descriptor. God knows how to use language. And when you just read what the Bible says for what it says, boy, God is really good at telling his own story. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.